0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. The Death House, established in 1954 under the Eisenhower administration, serves as a federal maximum security prison,
1: medical, psychological, and parapsychological research center.
2: Agent Novak. Meet your fellow graduate, Agent Toria Boone. Welcome to Death House. Does it live up to what you study? Some are dosed with just LSD while others are subjected to electroshock, sensory deprivation, all to break down the subject's personality.
0: They've got some surprises waiting for
3: you and your girl here.
4: Our goal is to eradicate evil.
3: This is our endgame.
0: I know this house is insane, and I know that you have to be careful.
3: Tell me you're both armed.
5: You know something. I know
0: everything, Novak. Redmay.
3: me! We gotta find a way up. I
2: am immortal. We need to get out of here. I have no idea.
4: The atrocities are committed. I will follow you to hell. The way out is not that way. It's down. To them. With me.
5: Shh. We forgot to close the elevator shaft.
0: Those were scenes from Death House about a secret government prison conducting mind control experiments on unfortunate victims who rebel and take over the premises. And horror movies like these are noted for reflecting horrors in the real world in this country. Whether Guantanamo or such actual secret CIA, quote, brain warfare, mind control experiments like MKUltra under the Eisenhower administration. And a star of Death House, cult figure in horror movies Michael Freeman is our guest on the show, having appeared in over 100 films, including Milos Forman's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes but Freeman's actual horror happened in real life. His 26 birth defects, including facial and head disfigurements that ironically led to his being the horror movie actor of choice and the result of his military father's secret mission to study the U.S. results of the atomic bombing aftermath in Hiroshima. He'll be talking about all that, including his current film Room 9 and why he spent 10 years living in a wolf sanctuary. First, some scenes from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, then Michael Freeman.
4: Why do you think they might think that? Don't make a bit of sense to me. Do you think there's anything wrong with your
5: mind, really?
4: Not a thing, Doc.
5: Uh, excuse me, miss. Do you think it might be possible to turn that music down so maybe a couple of the boys could talk?
2: Your hand is staining my window.
5: God almighty, she's got you guys coming and going. Little change
0: never hurt, huh? Little variety. Oh, Jesus! <laughs> <laughs>
4: Oh, come on, you're not gonna say that now! You're not gonna say that now!
2: You're gonna pull that henhouse! Now, when the vote
0: the chief just voted, it was 10 to 9! I want that television set turned on right now! I don't think he's overly psychotic.
3: I want something terrible.
0: I think he's dangerous. <laughs>
5: Jesus, I mean, you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here, and then you haven't got the guts just to walk out. I mean, what do you think you are, for Christ's sake, crazy or something? Well, you're not. Hey, wait a minute. Ah! Hold it! See how easy it is? Ah!
0: We're from the uh, state mental institution. Uh, this is Dr. Cheswick, Dr. Tabor, Dr. Scanlon. I'm Dr. McMurphy. All right, Mickey. All right take him over. He's over here. Get up, Page. <laughs> How about it, you creeps, you lunatics, mental defective.
3: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'll never forget you.
0: Now, one of your first films was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest which became an enormous classic. What was it like being part of that film so early in your career and working with Jack Nicholson?
3: Well, it was actually my second day in the business. I'd worked uh, one day on a movie called Doc Savage with Ron Ely. I was uh, discovered in Venice Beach. I had a little gift shop there, and I, I, and I was introduced to George Powell, who at the time I didn't know who he was, and then uh, I re- realized that he had done some of my favorite movies, like Journey to the Center of the Earth uh, things like that. So he he actually put his hands up and, and framed my face and he says, uh, you have to look for the coroner in this movie. Would you be interested? I did. I got a SAG car. I got paid $400 and worked one day. And then I figured well, I was the quickest cooner because I was going to homestead in Alaska. I never had, never, never my wildest dreams uh, had the inclination or drive to become an actor. So um, one day i get a phone call and it's from a casting director mike fenton and gene feinberg and they were casting for one of the cuckoo's nest ironically they were also the casting of george powell but i had never met them i didn't have headshots or anything of that nature i was i was uh discovered by the producer george powell so subsequently they uh, had a chance to uh um, see what i looked like etc and have a conversation and they said, uh, come to uh, a meeting I did, and there was Michael Douglas, his brother Joel Douglas, Milo Foreman, our director, and Saul Zance, our executive producer. And they said, we're doing Cuckoo's Nest, uh, which I was very much aware of. I'd seen the play in uh, the Pasadena in the Playhouse, actually uh, performed by Woody Strode uh, as, uh, um, as as Chief Brompton. And McMurphy, I think, was played by. Um, i just just escaped it. Anyway, uh, it's a very powerful uh, human uh, tale, a lot of humanity in it, and I said, I'd be delighted. So it's a great, uh, because the uh, creases in your skull from skull surgery, like we um, can add some uh, lobotomy scars, and you'd be a perfect uh, lobotomy patient, and we'll see you in Oregon. And one thing led to another, and I got on a plane and worked for 127 days on one of the most uh, important films I ever made. It was absolutely wonderful. I, got, uh, I actually got paid for a six-day, 70-hour week. It, was, it wasn't a lot of money. I think it was like $400 a week or something like that for uh, uh, all that time. But it was like getting paid to go to film school. And then from there, uh, I did uh, The Hillside Eyes. So uh, George opened the door for me and I'm forever grateful.
0: You've been in so many horror movies, so what was new and different about this one, Room 9, that got you on board?
3: Sure, I can uh, bring the character to life. So we uh, we, uh, went to the set and got dressed up and we uh, created, uh, created
0: the character. And you've been described on screen as, quote, playing evil, dangerous, and creepy to gentle, mystical, sage, whimsical, comedic, and even angels, and generally portraying mutant bikers, evil undertakers, monsters, and other assorted frightening characters. What are your thoughts about all that?
3: Oh well, it's a uh, it, it, it's a broad brush description of the various roles that I that I've uh, uh, um, had the opportunity to play. Uh, I will just say that honestly, uh, most people uh, in the industry, well, everyone in the industry, uh, uh, unless you're a household name and um, heck the girl, we all get uh, typecast according to how we look visually and physically, and. Uh, over time, uh, our performances and the creativity that we uh, bring to light uh, can uh, open doors to where we have uh, a wider range of, of casting uh, opportunities. So, uh, yes, it, it, it's correct. I've played everything from a devil to, the, uh, to a guardian angel.
0: <laughs> now, your father was a World War II military surgeon stationed in the Hiroshima atomic bomb zone. So, do you think that had anything to do with your physical challenges at birth?
3: Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I've just completed my memoir. It's called It's All Good. It's uh, in the process of being uh, sent to my manager, and it's going to be, Uh, we'll be having a meeting with a publisher out of New York. Um, Yes, absolutely. My father was uh, John Sloan Berryman out of Los Angeles. He pioneered the uh, echo and He was in. neurologist and, and, and brain surgeon, and uh, he actually um, went on a secret mission uh, to Hiroshima after they dropped the bomb to study the effects uh, on, on survivors of what uh, a type of a weapon that does to humans. And he sent home pictures of, uh, well, F one is like a wall and there's shadows on the wall, which are actually human bodies that have been disintegrated in uh, infused in solid concrete. Um, while he was there, uh, he, of course, was exposed to a high uh, level of radiation. And then when I was born, uh, subsequently, a year or two after, um, his DNA had been altered, of course, and, and I was born with about 27 different uh, birth defects. There's a direct correlation uh, to uh, uh, nuclear radiation and, and uh, uh, genetic harm. Uh, I'm, I'm a firm believer that uh, uh, we never should have split the atom. It's done us no good whatsoever.
0: And what can you say about being an advocate for environmental protection and living on a wolf sanctuary for ten years?
3: Well, uh, yes, I did live at a, a, a wolf rescue sanctuary, and a lot of people uh, over time think that exotic pets uh, are should be pets. Uh, it's uh, cruel. It's inhumane. It's uh, ignorant. And it's all for ego. And so the people that have them um, and aren't taking good care of them uh, usually get turned into a fishing game or animal control, which is the proper procedure. And then they are uh, relocated to a sanctuary. Uh, Like, for instance, the actress Tippi Hedren has one in North Los Angeles called uh, Cougar Hill Ranch. Uh, There are uh, wonderful people that do this type of work. Uh, You do it, because of the need. So my point in that is that um, um, wild animals and apex predators should be left alone in, in, in nature. And, and humans uh, would be, uh, well, it would be a good thing if we uh, stopped uh, just destroying habitats. Uh, I, I talked to a lot of schools, talked to children, and, and let them know that they're the heroes of the, possible, of the potential future. Uh, I don't cut corners, I tell it to them straight, uh, because uh, I said all the uh, animals that you uh, have seen pictures about in your lifetime will probably be extinct uh, before the end of your life because humans never cared. Um, I've met wonderful people like Ashton Kutcher and and, and other uh, people uh, of means that uh, actually can uh, help finance uh, uh, the uh, um, protectors of wildlife uh, areas. they actually have to hunt humans because humans want to come in and, you know, kill an elephant and sell the ivory and make money or, you know, big game hunters want to, uh, you know, kill the grizzly there and stuff a head on the wall. I'm sorry, uh, I grew up uh, um, urban and also living in, in Santa Monica, but um, uh, I know what it's like to hunt. I, did, I was a meat cutter in college. So I, I, I know how to, I was an Eagle Scout. Uh, I've done those, 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 uh, um, comforts. My point is uh, uh, extinction is forever and to not uh, appreciate the gifts of the creator uh, creates disaster for all. So, uh, God bless us and protect.
0: And when Michael Berryman looks in the mirror, what does he see?
3: I, I, <laughs> well, that's a very interesting question. Um, well, uh, I see myself. I, I, I uh, It's uh, it's always reflective. Um you know, I, 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 I look like to see if I miss something shaving, enough if I need to scrape, scrape away that bucket. But, no, actually, I see someone that uh, has uh, been very blessed to uh, make it to this uh, age in my life, I was 72 years old, and um, basically healthy. Uh, we all have our, our various uh, medical issues, which I have uh, dealt with my entire life, and, and that is also shared in my, in my, in my memoir. Uh, it starts from, uh, yes, uh, Hiroshima to Hollywood is basically the, the, the uh, subtext title. So um, I see someone who was uh, grateful to be uh, uh, healthy, have uh, friends and family, and um, I just put it simply. Uh, I woke up this morning and didn't fall down, and everything worked, so I'm uh, very grateful.
0: Okay, thank you so much, Michael Berryman, for calling into the show.
3: Oh, you're very welcome. I want to leave you real quick with uh, one quick little uh, uh philosophical comment from my grandmother Sophie uh, and it, here's what it is. Um, I went to med school so basically uh, it's anatomically correct. You don't need to Google it. Okay. I, um, I propose that you should be lazy on a daily basis and what I mean by lazy is uh, it, it's a, uh, um, it, it, it takes three muscles to smile and 27 to frown. So <laughs> be lazy. Thank you very much.
0: Okay, bye. Bye-bye. And Michael Freeman's memoir, From Hiroshima to Hollywood, is coming out soon in release. And now on Arts Express.
4: Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Today we'll be celebrating the work of a poet whose poems I love, Denise Levertov very influential. She wrote about a wide range of subjects. She's published her poems over a span of 40 years and influenced generations of British and American poets. And she was incredibly courageous. She turned to writing political poems at a time when writing political poems was kind of frowned upon by many. She had an unusual upbringing. She was born in England in 1923, and her father was an Anglican preacher, but who was also very politically active in his community. And her mother homeschooled her and taught her everything about literature. She always had books in her house, was always teaching her about books and literature. And it must have taken because Levertov said that, that I knew that before I was 10 that I was an artist person and I had a destiny. And she was quite the mischievous little girl. When she was 11, without telling her parents, she went out selling the daily worker house to house in the working class streets where she was brought up. And there was something about the lack of formal education that helped form Denise Levertov's poetic voice. Critic Amy Gertzler said, Levitov possessed a clear, uncluttered voice, a voice committed to acute observation and engagement with the earthly in all its attendant beauty, mystery, and pain. The turning point for Levitov came in the 1960s. She had come to the US after her marriage to an American. And during the 60s, her poems became more political as a result of her activism against the Vietnam War. She was criticized for writing the Vietnam poems But as critic Mel Gussow wrote, by shifting to passionate Vietnam poems, she had lost some of her following, but gained a new vitality. She died in 1997 at the age of 74. The poet Kenneth Rexroth once wrote that Ms. Levertov was the most subtly skillful poet of her generation, the most profound, the most modest, the most moving. Our thanks to New Directions Publishing Corporation for permission to broadcast the poems, and now the wonderful Mary Murphy, reading poems by Denise Levertov. The
1: Pilots, because they were prisoners, because they were polite and friendly and lonesome and homesick, because they said yes, they knew the names of the bombs they dropped but didn't say whether they understood what these bombs are designed to do to human flesh. And because I didn't ask them, being unable to decide whether to ask would serve any purpose other than cruelty. And because since then I met Mrs. Brown and the mother of one of their fellow prisoners and loved her, for she has the same loving kindness in her that I saw in Vietnamese women and men too. And because my hostility left the room and wasn't there when I thought I needed it while I was drinking tea with the POWs. Because of all of these reasons, I hope they were truly as ignorant, as unawakened, as they seemed. I hope their chances in life up to this point have been poor. I hope they can truly be considered victims of the middle America they come from. Their American legionnaire fathers. Their macho high schools. Their dull-skimped freshman English courses. For if they did understand precisely what they were doing, and did it anyway, and would do it again, then I must learn to distrust my own preference for trusting people. Then I must learn to question my own preference for liking people. Then I must learn to keep my hostility chained to me so it won't leave me when I need it. And if it is proved to me that these men understood their acts how shall I ever again be able to meet the eyes of Mrs. Brown? Talking to Grief Ah, Grief, I should not treat you like a homeless dog who comes to the back door for a crust, for a meatless bone. I should trust you. I should coax you into the house and give you your own corner, a worn mat to lie on, your own water dish. You think I don't know you've been living under my porch. You long for your real place to be readied before winter comes. You need your name, your collar, and tag. You need the right to warn off intruders, to consider my house your own, and me your person and yourself, my own dog. For the New Year, 1981 I have a small grain of hope. One small crystal that gleams clear colors out of transparency. I need more. I break off a fragment to send you. Please take this grain of a grain of hope so that mine won't shrink. Please share your fragment so that yours will grow. Only so, by division, will hope increase like a clump of irises which will cease to flower unless you distribute the clustered roots. Unlikely source, clumsy and earth-covered. Of grace. Writing in the Dark It's not difficult. Anyway, it's necessary. Wait till morning, and you'll forget. And who knows if morning will come? Fumble for the light, and you'll be stark awake. But the vision will be fading, slipping out of reach. You must have paper at hand, a felt-tip pen. Ballpoints don't always flow. Pencil points tend to break. There's nothing shameful in that much prudence. Those are your tools. Never mind about crossing your T's, dotting your I's. But take care not to cover one word with the next. Practice will reveal how one hand instinctively comes to the aid of the other to keep each line clear of the next. Keep writing in the dark, a record of the night, or words that pulled you from depths of unknowing, words that flew through your mind, strange birds crying their urgency with human voices. Or opened, as flowers of a tree that blooms only once in a lifetime. Words that may have the power to make the sun rise again. Thinking about El Salvador Because every day they chop heads off, I'm silent. In each person's head they chopped off was a tongue. For each tongue they silence, a word in my mouth unsays itself. From each person's head, two eyes looked at the world. For each gaze they cut, a line of seeing unwords itself. Because every day they chop heads off, no force flows into language. Thoughts think themselves worthless. No blade of machete threatens my neck, but its muscles cringe and tighten. My voice hides in its throat cave, ashamed to sound into that silence. The silence of raped women, of priests and peasants, teachers and children. Of all whose heads every day flow down the river and rot and sink. Not Orpheus' heads still singing, bound for the sea, but mute. And the last poem that Denise Levertov wrote. Aware. When I found the door, I found the vine leaves speaking among themselves in abundant whispers. My presence made them hush their green breath, embarrassed. The way humans stand up, buttoning their jackets, acting as if they were leaving anyway, as if the conversation had ended just before you arrived. I liked the glimpse I had, though, of their obscure gestures. I like the sound of such private voices. Next time, I'll move like cautious sunlight, open the door by fractions, eavesdrop peacefully.
4: And you've been listening to poems by Denise Levertov, read by Mary Murphy. Thanks to New Direction's publishing corporation for permission to broadcast the following. The pilots from The Freeing of the Dust, 1975. Talking to Grief from Poems, 1972 to 1982, 1978. For the New Year, 1981, and Writing in the Dark from Candles in Babylon, 1982. Thinking about El Salvador from Oblique Prayers, 1984. All are copyrighted by Denise Levertov, all used by permission of New Directions Publishing Corporation. In addition, Aware from This Great Unknowing, copyright 1999 by the Denise Levertoff Literary Trust, Paul A. Lacey, and Valerie Trueblood Rapport co-trustees. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller.
0: Listening to Arts Express, and coming up next, No Ordinary Love, director China Robinson's devastating dramatic feature about domestic violence, and what it has to do with cops and the military, post-traumatic stress disorder, and religion, and the young African-American filmmakers own roots in the Bible Belt, spiritual manipulation, and the power of churches. First, some scenes from No Ordinary Love then China Robinson.
4: What are you doing here? Where else would I be, Sweet pea? Shadows in the sky, footsteps in the night. Behind me. I ran into a uh, church
1: member this morning. I'm concerned.
4: Targets in their sight. Comes it up. Running out of
1: light. You can't be here. you save
5: me. does she tell you what happened.
1: Yeah, it's her husband. Red
4: moon on the right You say
5: The more respect you show a man, the more love he will give in return. Trust me. We could be happy. It's gonna be in their best interest for both of them (laughs) if if she's as obedient to him as possible while he's going through
4: this space.
2: Why do you keep testing me?
4: Remember when I bought this piano? Patient. When I taught you how to play?
2: Gentle. I just can't figure out what I did to change him so much. I can't just walk out on a marriage.
4: If his heart changes, well, then that's a win for her and for the kingdom.
1: He'll get there. Praise God.
4: We could be a perfect team.
1: You're not going anywhere.
4: It will never happen again. You are
2: my wife. Get out of my house. This is my damn house.
4: I mean, I was in danger. I didn't even scream for
2: help. I won't lie. The most dangerous time will be when you try to leave. I love you. Everything.
4: I have a flood there's just nothing left.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Don't be so serious. I'm just cleaning up. Is your trauma about domestic violence autobiographical or based on any personal experience?
2: It is not based on any personal experience, although I've pulled a lot of emotion um, from my personal life. So I've never been in a relationship marred by domestic violence, but I have been lied to, manipulated. I have been in a relationship way past when I should have been gone. Mm. So I was able to pull some of the thought process. I just wanted to go back to the good times. Oh, but it was so good. Oh, you know, he was so great. So a lot of that is what makes these relationships so complex.
0: And why have you chosen this subject and this story for your first feature film?
2: I was actually approached by um, a friend who ended up being the executive producer. She sat on the, well, she was the chair of the board of our local shelter and wanted to spread awareness about what intimate partner violence actually was and she thought hey i know a filmmaker and so she reached out and just asked you know would i be interested in doing this and that she would give full creative control so i got to build these characters and these stories and um all of that so that's That's where it came from. So I wasn't actually active as an advocate for awareness until I got into the research for this film. I did 2 months' research in every way possible. I spoke with survivors. I sat in mandated sessions with the offenders. I sat in with the DA on a DV homicide trial, a domestic violence homicide trial. I went to the shelters. I spoke with counselors I um read every statistic that I could get my hand on every article that I came across so I dove into it and now um it, it I have a I have a better understanding of what it was because I was one in the beginning that would say I just don't understand why she just doesn't leave like if she's hitting she should leave and now I understand that there's so many layers yeah. and it's just not that easy
0: And what can you say about the choices of religion and the police as the precipitating forces in your narrative?
2: Well, I chose both of those. One, I chose the pastor because I live in the Bible Belt, and we see a lot of um, scriptural manipulation, and we see a lot of power in some churches. Um, Not my own, but I have seen it. And so I thought it was important to address that, especially because we don't really acknowledge it or we don't know what to call it. So I wanted to touch on that spiritual abuse part and the psychological abuse. And who knows scripture better than a pastor? So I chose him for that reason. The police officer is actually one of the top three um, professions of abusers. And so that's why I chose the police officers. There's so much in officer-involved domestic violence, there's a statistics show. This is not, you know, just me being creative. Statistics show that um, police officers, their families are 40% more likely to be involved um, or have domestic violence in their home. Mm. And then police officers are often excused from domestic violence. If they're caught with marijuana, they're fired. If they're caught um, abusing their spouse or partner, they um, more times than not, maybe a slap on the wrist at most. Thought it was important to get into that.
0: And what are your thoughts in terms of twenty percent of cops, as opposed to six percent in the population, having been in the military, a number suffering from PTSD, and police having the highest number of those committing domestic violence, at forty percent of all cases?
2: You know, I I think that. I think that could very well be a part of it. Like, if you really break down abuse, it's about power and control. So police officers, as well as military, they're walking around with all of this power. They have the power over so many people's lives. And then they have to deal with that. And I know that it's stressful, and I know that things can trigger, but it's it's not really a reason for the abuse because you – have a time in place that you choose to um, exhibit, you know, whatever that abuse is, whether it's just coercive control, um, which is a big part of abuse, or if it's actually physical or emotional or whatever it is, because you decide whomever you are, even with PTSD, you decide this person I can unleash on, but this person I will not. If someone upsets you in the store, you're not necessarily going to grab them and shake them. Um, because you, it's not an anger issue It's a control issue It's a power issue And so I do think there's something to be said about the PTSD About the military About police officers I can absolutely understand that they're carrying a lot of stress And I think mental health is a big part of that and that that's something that the police department needs to look into and spend some money on, uh, you know, counseling, more money on counseling and training.
0: Now your film is both very heartfelt and also troubling. What would you hope No Ordinary Love conveys to victims and potential victims on the one hand, and men on the other hand?
2: Well, I would say to victims, I want them to feel seen and heard. Um, we've had a lot of survivors of abuse, see the film at festivals, and they always come up and say, wow, that was my story. That was spot on. This part right here was me. This part held with me. And believed, because a lot of times we don't believe victims of abuse. I would like for them to, like, there's a possibility that there are some people out there that don't realize what they're doing. Not the majority probably, but there are some thinking I, you know, I'm alpha male. This is what my dad did. This is what my granddad did. And this is the way that you control your household. This is the way that you speak to your partner, or your spouse. And so maybe they walk away saying, oh my gosh, am I doing that? Is that me? So I think maybe they can take that away. And more importantly, maybe some of these men who are not abusers can start speaking up more because it's not a female problem. It's and we know that anybody can be abused. Men, women, you know, anyone can be abused. So it. but we need men to start really speaking up about it and calling other men out on it. So that would be something that we definitely want people to walk away with.
0: And what challenges have you faced as both a woman and an African-American in the male-dominated film world and prevailing?
2: You know, um... Being African-American and female, I'm pretty much at the bottom of the list where it comes to funding and opportunity. So, I mean, you know, I have to do what we've always done, and we are creative, and we're resourceful, and we have to figure it out. If we need more money, we have to figure out how to get it. Let's be creative and figure it out. I have to, you know, I work harder. I have had instances where it was, oh, hey, sweetheart, or hey, little lady, we'll, you know, we'll take care of this or, you know, instead of being seen as an equal. Mm. So, and if you assert yourself, then you're called something else. And Mm. so, you know, you, you just have to decide, okay, how do I want to be perceived? And my work speaks for myself, but also my work ethic speaks for itself. So, you know, it's, I know where I stand, And I know what I have to do to rise above it, and that's what I'm doing.
0: And are you working on anything next?
2: I am. I am actually um, about to shoot a love story this summer. It is a short, but I'm also going into pre-production in the next couple of weeks for a sci-fi fantasy, which is Ah. a feature. So I'm very excited about that. And I always say, just for so long, Black females have not been able to break into Hollywood. I mean, it was just never built for us anyway. And so these stories that are being told sometimes about our experience, they're not told through our lens.
0: And No Ordinary Love is out now in release. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with Bro on the World Film Beat and Professor Dennis Bro's on-location wrap-up report at the Cannes Film Festival. And what it all has to do With oppression in Colombia, an automobile fetish, Oliver Stone and the CIA unredacted and revised JFK Through the Looking Glass, and a World War II parade of Ukrainians in traditional peasant outfits gleefully brandishing swastikas. The FBI concluded that all three bullets struck inside the car. He was
3: hit for the first and the third. The second shot hit the governor. The third shot had
4: tore a large part of the president's head off. The Warren commission put itself in a straitjacket. They could not possibly allow more than three shots because four shots or more would have clearly indicated conspiracy and they were not going there.
0: Records show the first shot had missed its target completely and the final shot hit Kennedy in the head. So how does one account for one bullet hitting two victims and doing all this damage? Arlen Specter was a Yale Law School graduate working in the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office when he was asked to serve on the Warren Commission.
3: Uh Aha, what if one bullet made all seven wounds? Arlen Specter, he is the one that gave birth to the single bullet theory. What if one bullet went into Kennedy's back and came out his neck? and then went into Connelly's back, uh, piercing the lung, destroying four inches of the right fifth rib, exiting from the front of his chest, going into the back of the wrist, shattering the distal under the radius, and a six foot four guy like Conley, that's a big heavy bone, comminuted fracture, exits from the front of the wrist, goes into his left thigh. Whatever you want, whatever you need, this bullet happily and readily obliges you. It is indeed a magic bullet.
4: CE-399 was the magic bullet, and all government investigations so far have treated that bullet as absolutely
5: foundational to this case. This is Bro on the world film beat Breaking Glass. Today's episode, Con and COVID go together like a horse and carriage. Another con film festival is in the books, and this one, which Variety labeled Red Carpet Done Right and The Hollywood Reporter hoped would kick off a global comeback for the film industry and a return to a new normal, instead was beset with all the contemporary contradictions as the global crisis outran the global comeback. Oliver Stone marked another 30-year anniversary in his JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, a documentary sequel to JFK which incorporated additional evidence now unredacted from the Warren Commission and House of Representatives reports, giving increased credence to the film's thesis that JFK was assassinated not by a lone gunman, but most likely by CIA and ex-CIA members, which, after Kennedy's failure to back the Bay of Pigs Cuba invasion, then launched their ultimate dirty tricks operation. Stone described his new research, including Kennedy scholars, claiming that Kennedy was actively engaged in a global peace movement and in withdrawing the U.S. from Vietnam, as converting conspiracy theory into conspiracy fact. Whoopi Goldberg and Stone narrate the first part of the film, and Stone then inserts the clip from JFK where Donald Sutherland, as a deep cover Colonel X, asks who had the motive for killing Kennedy, beginning to point toward the intelligence agency. Sutherland then narrates the second, more involving part of the film, which details the CIA's dissatisfaction. Toward Kennedy, who having visited Vietnam as the French were losing the country, saw the US as facing a similar fate and wanted peace, as well as a de facto understanding with the just completed revolution in Algeria, the left leaning Sukarno in Indonesia, and Egypt's Nasser, the pan Arab proponent, who is said to have wept for an entire night upon hearing of Kennedy's death. The film also relates the French President de Gaulle's confronting Kennedy with his suspicion that the U.S. backed the plot to assassinate him by a right-wing cabal of his generals, to which Kennedy is said to have replied that there are parts of the government he had no control over. Sutherland's narration of these findings, then, because of the previous clip from Stone's earlier film, is invested with the fictional authority of Colonel X, rather than simply the actor's voice, a remarkable blending of fact and fiction. First prize, the Palme d'Or, went to Titane, a film loaded with treachery, gender-bending decadence, and automobile fetish. Black Swan meets Fast and Furious. Jury President Spike Lee let the cat out of the bag inadvertently announcing the winner at the beginning of the awards ceremony, but that was the least of the problems, in particular for the French film industry. This edition of the festival essentially ruled by the french theater owners who three years ago threatened to fire festival director Thierry fromo if he ever again allowed a streaming service entry in the main competition was all about promotion of french film as many of the filmmakers elected to delay the release of their films one year to take advantage of the con promotional lift the americans on the other hand used the lockdown to either launch or strengthen their digital streaming services and to condition global audiences for streaming releases of films. For the French industry, the COVID catastrophe intervened, as the French president Macron announced midway through the festival that because of the rapidly increasing cases due to the Delta strain and the resistance to vaccination, on the Wednesday after the festival ends, the prime day for these films making a splash in theaters, everyone attending the cinema must produce the QR code showing two shots of the vaccine plus two weeks and no cinema hall could house more than 50 spectators. To add insult to injury, he also gave restaurants, cafes, and nightclubs an additional two weeks before these new restrictions apply. The Indian Delta strain now plaguing France as a result of the greed of Western big pharma and supposed do-gooders like the G7 group of neocolonial powers, which failed to push for patent sharing and a global vaccination. Scientists are also coming to a consensus. That climate change plays a huge part in the spreading of COVID and similar pandemics because as animal habitats shrink due to global warming and humans live closer to animals, the likelihood of deadly viruses jumping from one species to another increases. So the con new normal was disrupted by the corporate forces the festival nominally stands above in its validation of art over commerce. In a special climate section, French director Cyril Dion's Animal did raise this point. The film is an elegantly photographed tour of the planetary destruction caused by climate change as its two teens join in a picking-up-plastic campaign on the beaches of Mumbai, observe shrinking nature in the wild in Kenya, and visit an island where foxes killed by global eagles who have migrated there in search of food stricken from their habitat are being brought back to their natural place in the ecosystem. Dion is well aware of the stakes and stated in a festival press conference that if individual initiative, which the film validates, were completely successful, this would only eliminate 24% of greenhouse gases. The film does partake of neoliberal reform as on a rabbit farm. The two are told that here rabbits in tight cages are raised humanely, and only at the end of the visit do they bring up that this humane treatment is only to later slaughter them. The Franco-Indian boy is quite curious and natural, while the Brit girl, Bella Lack, often preens to the camera in a way that suggests she may use global warming as a stepping stone to media stardom. The corporate media has their own brand of wealth washing, evidenced in Deadline's profile of the French actress Léa Seydoux, who appeared in four films in the festival, including Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, a nostalgic look at a journalism in a small French town in the last century, which is now everywhere disappearing in France as well as in the U.S. The French audience, aware of these changes, gave the film a nine-minute standing ovation at its screening. The immigrant question was on the minds of global filmmakers as two films, the possible Oscar contender Blue Bayou and Europa, dealt in variously effective ways with the harsh treatment of those not born in the U.S. and Europe. Blue Bayou, written, directed, and starring Justin Chong, revolves around a Korean-American outside Baton Rouge, being threatened with deportation. The film is a prime example of the immigrant melodrama, where the former victim position of the woman in the Hollywood mellows of the 40s and 50s is now occupied by the immigrant, be they male or female. Most effective part of the film is Alicia Vikander, who plays the deportee's wife, rendering an unbelievably touching, heartfelt, but not overdrawn version of Linda Ronstadt's phrasing of Roy Orbison's Blue Bayou. Europe, on the other hand, is a Darden Brothers in close framing of an Iraqi immigrant's entry into Fortress Europa by way of Bulgaria. In shots where we hardly see anything else but him, let's call it the Paul Greengrass Flight 93 version of events. He is variously beaten and abused. The film is ultimately far less effective for its refusal to supply any context to the immigrant's plight. Protests were much in evidence as, on the disingenuous side, the festival's directors snuck in, after the Chinese film screenings so they could not be withdrawn in protest, Revolution of Our Times, a propaganda documentary validating the often violent student protests backed by Western capitalists and governments as a toehold in the developing new Cold War against China, which has dared challenge those powers for economic parity. On the side of genuine protest was Amparo, a touching fiction set in the Colombian city of Medellin in the 1990s about a mother's journey in humiliation as she attempts to free her son, who has been shanghaied into the Colombian army, to be sent to the most dangerous war zone. The director, Simon Meza Soto, explained that with the Duque government continuing to wage war against the guerrilla movement, the FARC, which, like the majority of Colombians, now wants peace, the situation detailed in his film is... 30 years later, still a reality, as each day, protesters in Medellin are being shot by the U.S.-backed government. Finally, there was Ukrainian director Sergei Loznitsa's Bobby Yar, Context an astute assembly of footage from German and Russian archives that tells the story of the Nazi invasion of the Ukraine, and most particularly of the murder of over 33,000 Jews and the burying of their bodies in the Baviyar Ravine outside Kiev. In 1944, as the Russians approached, the Nazis ordered Ukrainians, whom they then shot, to dig up the bodies and burn them to hide the evidence of their crimes while later color footage shows industrial waste being pumped into the ravine at the order of the local town council, with the Ukrainians themselves further erasing traces of the atrocity. Loznitsa has a very anti-Soviet bent, and he does parallel cut first the Ukrainians putting up Hitler posters, and then, after the Red Army sweeps through, equally papering Stalin posters. The footage, though, also shows the right wing fascist element who welcomed the Nazis as a parade of separated men and women in traditional Ukrainian peasant outfits gleefully brandish swastikas. A fascinating confronting of brutal realities often glossed over in this edition of the festival. This is Bro on the world film Beat Breaking Glass. And that's
0: all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.